Welcome to Orion Valley. Hello, film listeners. This is super exciting. We are starting a brand new series today called Off the Shelf, but I am not doing it alone. That's right. This is for the first time in Frankly I Love Movies history. It is a season of two hosts. I'm joined by previous guest and one of my best friends in the world, Rihanna Henson. How are you, my friend? I'm good. How are you, my friend? I'm doing so well. I'm so excited. This is really great. Um, thank you, first of all, for wanting to do this and oh, for thanks. putting the time and effort into to being a part of this show for the next few months. Sure. Thank you for wanting me to do this. And of course. I'm so happy to do it, and I'm, I'm very excited. So the series is called Off the Shelf. And I uh, why don't you give the listeners just a brief little overview of what we're going to be doing for the next few months? Well, uh, we're going to be reading some books uh, and we have a graphic novel in the list, too, uh, which I do count as a book. Mm -hmm. But uh, we're going to be reading books that have been adapted into films and just sort of uh, comparing how you know, a film adaptation lines up to a book, <laughs> the mm -hmm. book, the source material. Um, because I think there's a tendency for people to say, oh, I've seen the movie, but I haven't read the book. Or I've read the book, but I haven't seen the movie. And mm -hmm. so I, I think seeing how reading a book and then watching the film in close succession can really make you feel about the source material or the film itself uh, will be a fun little project. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Beautifully said. Yeah. No, it's it's all about film adaptations of novels. And as Rihanna said, we are both reading the book and watching the movie to give a full in-depth analysis on the adaptation as a whole. So this, these will not be your typical, frankly, I love movies episode. Obviously, we'll go deep into the movie, but we're also talking about the book. We're doing them, doing them both together. And uh, I'm really excited. And I think we are starting off with a great one. Um, but before we get to the specifics of Fight Club, which we'll be talking about today, um, I want to know, uh, as um, a fan of movies and as an English major, I want to know how you um, typically go about like taking in media that is an adaptation of a book. Like, do you go in with specific expectations? Do you um, always try and go in knowing at least something from the original source material like the book? Or is it different when you read the book? You're like, I want to search out the movie and see how different that is. Like, what is what is your mindset when you go into to a piece of work knowing it's an adaptation of something else? That's a good question. Um I think I have not seen a lot of adaptations or it's something where, you know, I, I watched the film not knowing that it was an adaptation, like off camera. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we were just talking about Requiem for a Dream. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw that film and had no idea it was, you know, adapted from, uh, I think, a short story. I might be wrong. A novel, probably. Uh, so I haven't really kept an eye out while watching films for uh, if it could be adapted from something. Uh, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but for a very long time, I did not know that No Country for Old Men was <laughs> a Cormac McCarthy novel. Uh, mm -hmm. And I didn't start reading him until the, uh, the last couple of years. Uh, so I think it's something that I'm just not really typically aware of especially because at the end of the day literature and film are each their own medium mm -hmm. uh and so you're gonna you know you're gonna consume what there is to consume differently 
Uh, and obviously they're comparable, especially when it's an adaptation. But uh, yeah, I can't remember if I answered your question. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> no, no, for sure. And I, I'm in the same boat where I just think it's one of those things where there's so many of them. There are exactly. like, you know, dozens of film adaptations of novels and other, you know, literary works that come out every year. And so it's it's kind of inevitable. I don't really necessarily think when these movies come out that it is fully expected of us to have read the book. Not always, at least. I know we have a couple mm-hmm. um, we have a couple instant uh, episodes in our in our lineup here where they're based off of like well-known stories. I know we're going to be talking about the Green Knight in a in a few weeks, mm-hmm. um, but I, I think it's interesting that there's so many of them. And I'm personally not someone who goes into it like needing to know if it's a story that it's that I'm very interested in or have read the book. I'm obviously excited, but I'm always personally one when I go into them. I'm I know that, like you said, they are two very different mediums and they can bring out different elements of the story to kind of create their own work. And that's really exciting to see. And I, I think we picked a great one with Fight Club. Um, but I'm also not one to I, I have friends who are very much like if, if something that they love isn't in the book, then the movie adaptation wasn't a success. And sometimes it's, that's definitely true. But I, I'm always on the side of how is this working for the medium and how is a new story being brought about or how is this servicing the story? And yeah. there's because some stuff, it's just really tough to adapt. it. It's tough to bring it about. Um, but I, I'm always interested to see what carries over and what uh, what is left behind, what the reasonings for them uh, for the choices that were made were I'm I'm always curious about that and sometimes if it's a movie that I really love I'm like oh it's based on a book I want to go I want to go check that out I want to read it. I'm yeah. always trying to read more that was another big thing with this series is that like, we had a <laughs> succinct list of of books that we wanted to do and I'm like great I'm getting back on a scheduled reading list this is awesome also it's, hard it's, to make the list there's so many to choose mm-hmm. from yeah we managed to get it down to eight uh, we had we each had four picks and we have a couple really great special episodes coming for you guys uh, later in the season. Um, but uh, for right now, let's talk about Fight Club. Uh, I think it's one of the more famous. Well, Josh, uh, you're forgetting the first rule of Fight Club. Well, we're going to we got to break. We got to break both of them. <laughs> one for the book, one for the movie where we're it's e- it's even playing field here. Um, when you log this movie on Letterboxd, by the way, uh-huh. it says like right before you log it and like review it, it says just so you know, you're about to break the first and second rule of Fight Club. Do you oh, still want to? Do you still want to? Uh, you know, say it? and if and one option is cancel, and then the other option is letter rip. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty fun. Yeah. I did not notice that. Love Letterboxd. Um, but so obviously, Fight Club is a novel uh, by uh, Chuck Palahniuk from uh, the early '90s and of 1996. Or 1996, yeah, correct. 1996, and then was adapted by David Fincher. In 1999, starring Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, and Helena Bottom Carter, it follows an uh, an unnamed narrator uh, who is feeling uh, kind of lost in life and disconnected from everything in his white collar job. He starts going to support group meetings to feel something and runs into a strange man named Tyler Durden, who is a soap salesman, and then begins uh, an interesting relationship between the two of them, starting an underground fight club and it kind of just spirals out of control. Um, let's, I think for this series, we're going to start with the book and then we're going to bring in the movie after a quick discussion uh, about the original source material. And so let's start with the book. I want to know from you first, was this your first time reading it? When did you first discover this book? 
Uh, this was my first time reading it. Not my first time reading Palinic. I'll probably mm-hmm. slip and call him Palunic. <laughs> Just Happens. a heads up. It's gonna, it's gonna happen. Uh, but my first time reading it, uh, but it was a book that I picked up uh, when I picked up like a few Chuck Palinic novels like years ago when I was like 17, 18 um, and was like pretty into him. Uh, and I started it and then didn't finish it. Uh, and yeah, there just wasn't anything that really pulled me into being completely, you know, immersed in it. The, the biggest pull for reading it was it, it was a movie. It was mm-hmm. made into a movie that I enjoyed. Um, but, uh, not to like kind of start off a whole discussion without asking you what you thought of the book. But, uh, yeah, I think with Palinic once you read one of his books, you've kind of read them all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think even as like a teenager, I kind of noticed that and was like, okay, I need a break from him Yeah, and moved on to different authors and then never really returned because I kind of feel like I uh, outgrew him a little bit or just did not have much of an interest in uh, revisiting his work. I also picked up the last novel I read of his, um, when I was on that kick, I thought was so terrible that I was like, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, just kind of, yeah, moved on to different, mm-hmm. uh, different shores. But, uh, well, what about you? So I actually saw the movie first when I was in high school, when I had just kind of started my journey of film appreciation and realizing that I wanted to be a director because it was one of my brother's favorite movies. And he was in college at the time. And this was this is obviously taken on a whole other life of, you know, fight club posters in dorm rooms. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, is is kind of a once you get to college, it kind of becomes like a sacred text almost like, Oh, you got to see fight club. You're at that point where it kind of spreads like wildfire. And so he showed it to me and I had never seen it. I didn't know the twist and I didn't know anything that happens in it. And, uh, I was really blown away by the movie and I was like, Oh, I want to read the book. And that summer when I was going into my sophomore year of high school, um, we had a reading assignment where we got to pick any book of our choosing and just write a paper on it. And so Mm -hmm. I, um, I read fight club because he had read it for a, for a class of his, so we had the copy. And, um, yeah, uh, Chuck Palahniuk, I haven't read any of his other novels, but I have read a couple of his short stories. I, mean, I know a friend of mine recommended, maybe not recommended, but told me about Guts. That's, like, that's the one, yeah. That's, like, the one, yeah. <laughs> and I, I kind of wish I didn't know that going into it, just because, like, that... Um, reputation around that short story is kind of greater than the actual short story itself. I do yeah, agree that. Sorry, go ahead. And I was about to say, but Palinic kind of rides that um, mm-hmm. based off of like some interviews that I read with him, uh, and you know, even in the afterward of uh, of Fight Club, he mentions that when he first started writing, and you know, going to workshops that you had to go to readings and you had to read your work aloud. Mm-hmm. And he would typically read in like bars <laughs> and that the only thing that would really get the attention was like gross out mm-hmm. edgy things. Yeah. Uh, and so he and he he would like brag with guts about how this many people passed out when I read it here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think he's pretty OK with that reputation kind of uh, speaking for itself. Yeah, for sure. And that and that's totally that's totally fine. I mean, it's his yeah. it's his work. He can have like he cannot he should obviously be receptive 
to the positives that people say and like enjoys that or some of the negatives and like having that reputation. Not many writers can say that for sure. And I'm not saying that that short story is is bad. I just had someone be like, this is the grossest, grossest thing I've ever read. You got to you like, don't read this. It'll make you sick. And I read it and I was like, yeah, this is this is graphic. But like, again, like it's not like the grossest thing I've ever read. It is it is graphic, but like his graphic writing, definitely you're right in his style of like describing graphic depictions and kind of the fucked up nature of, you know, just existence is very present throughout Fight Club and uh, and Guts as well. And I Honestly, and I'll, I'll be upfront. I had a blast rereading this book. I thought that it breezed by. It's really short. It's 200 pages. And he has a, I like that he puts it in the perspective just of this narrator who's obviously unreliable. And it makes it feel like this one single stream of consciousness of one person. So he can... Uh, focus on little details of, you know, certain things at the meetings or certain people that he meets. But then he can also go off on a tangent about how, you know, about how he first met Tyler, about Tyler's uh, story with the, like the urine and the perfume bottles at the, mm-hmm. at the one, uh, at the one party or things like that. He's able to just, he just kind of goes off or talks to uh, about the mark on his foot or something like it's kind of cool to see it in in that way of how it's just becomes this one person's thoughts you know over and over and obviously we'll talk about the the ending a a little bit later and how that um has been was changed quite um quite drastically in terms of how it is in the book to how it is uh in in the movie but i don't know like what, what did you make of the of the first reading i just personally i i had a great time rereading it i remembered some things about rereading it of reading it the first time in high school mm-hmm. um i i enjoyed myself personally yeah i thought it was fine um i i you know i will admit it, it did get to a point where i felt like i had to read it rather than i i wanted to um you know, because we were doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, again, some of that might come. Have you read any of Palinuk's other novels? Just Guts, no other Gut, like, okay. full novels. Yeah, I read the, um, the. it's basically like an anthology of short stories that Guts comes from, uh, mm-hmm. Haunted, which out of everything I've read from Palinuk, I think is his best. Um, and it's basically a collection of short stories uh, and some poems and then a main plot that uh, all the short stories kind of relate to uh but I, I yeah i thought fight club was like fine again i think if this was the first and only book i've read from him um i would have been a lot more into it or had more fun with it mm-hmm. but it, it really is like you you read one and you've read them all um he really you know he he relies on like gross out and shock um mm-hmm. and that's fine i i think shock and gross out is like fun um but i just think you should like own it and kind of yeah. own that that's what you uh that that's your draw uh because in interviews he has said that he uh he he brings up gross out things uh because he doesn't want to uh rely on just the emotional intellect of a story and i'm like well that's really funny because i don't think his work has much emotional intellect like yeah. j- just just kind of cop to that you like grossing people out that's fine like mm-hmm. i love gross out stuff um 
but yeah haunted is pretty good um and then i've i've read snuff which is just like so absurd and again very gross out um and then beautiful you i thought was so bad mm-hmm. and i was just like wow this is really a lot of the same thing over and over again um because i i think as an author he doesn't really he's not very dynamic mm-hmm. um i think a lot of his books just sound like they are being narrated by the same person because obviously there's style. Um, you know, Cormac McCarthy, who is on our list, uh, his books are very often violent and dark, grim, gritty, whatever, but they still feel very dynamic and you don't feel like you're reading the same thing over and over. And then uh, Brady Stanellis, another author on our list, who mm-hmm. I think can be compared to Palinik in a sense, um, and especially American Psycho could be compared to Fight Club with each of them being satire. Uh, you read his novels and he is very good at mixing it up. Like every novel of his does not sound like it's just being narrated by Patrick Bateman. And yeah. even though he writes some of like the grossest, most shocking gore, um, that's not really present in some of his other works and he's actually very talented at writing as a comedian or writing pretty compelling interpersonal drama and those are things that I don't think is very present in Palunik's work um, and yeah his his work really like resonated with me as a teenager when I was first getting into like reading yeah <laughs> uh, and, and writing too I'm a as a reader man <laughs> as a writer uh, he was definitely a huge influence for me when I was like first starting out and kind of mm-hmm. getting a sense of um, my own legs to stand on uh, but I just don't think he really like holds up I think he will forever hold up with like younger audiences I, I think there will always be generations of teenagers who pick him up and are really into him but I'm very curious if there's like older literature fans who are still reading Palinik and uh, if not like revere him or if it really is just like it teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> and like that's fine. Like it's important for there to be media and literature to resonate with teenagers. Like they should have something. Um, but yeah, so reading it, I was just like, it's fine. Um, I think it gross out which isn't really present in this book it's more so present in his other works Mm -hmm. um but the shock and edge and like the punchy one-liners uh i think all those things aside i think he is kind of a dry writer Mm -hmm. um and you know we're gonna get into it we start really talking about the movie but i think that's really where the strength of the movie comes uh in literally quite literally breathing life into it Mm -hmm. um because i think you know there's being nihilistic and then having like a dry sense of humor or being short and to the point whatever um which you know another author that we're going to read didion she's she's dry and blunt in the sense of um she kind of tells it like it is uh but she's still very captivating Whereas with Palinik, I think he is dry in the sense of there is not much behind the pull of the story, you know, like a fight club, split personality, mayhem, uh, and then his snappy Um, Mm one-liners. And, you know, I don't think he's a bad writer. I just think he is uh, not the most dynamic, like I said. Mm -hmm. 
No, that's totally fair. And I, I think you make a good point about the. I, I do find it funny how he says, like, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in the motion, in the emotional intellect of the, yeah, the, yeah, well, that, he, yeah. He didn't say he's more interested in it. He, he, he was talking about his gross shock stuff, and he was like, I do it to remind people. The, and I'm paraphrasing, but uh, I do to remind people that art can shock you on a gut level because I don't think a lot of art does. And I'm like, oh, please. Like, what? that's just not true. <laughs> OK. Um, yeah, that's 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 kind of crazy. But it, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that in the book, it's definitely a valid criticism to say that it it is kind of a one note um it it doesn't really, and I think this is where, like, the, again, the, one of the things about the movie really kind of escalates. It, it does kind of feel like, even though I just said I like that it is structured as a stream of consciousness, it is kind of moving from, sorry, it is kind of moving from one thing to the next. And I, I think it's paced really well, but it is very much just kind of riding the nihilistic kind of chaotic vibe throughout the entire movie and or throughout the entire book. Whereas, uh, like you're right, it, the, the movie is hysterical. The movie is so yeah, funny. Yeah, it is very and funny. And they really kind of put that into it. And I didn't laugh as much when I was reading the book. I was more, I, I think also, I mean, having already read it, I kind of knew what to expect about, mm-hmm. I knew how the ending was different. I knew that it was from a different person, like a, a, a slightly different perspective. It's just being a book as opposed to a visual, like where you can have so many different characters, obviously. Um but I, I thought it was interesting. I was more looking at like, okay, what did I miss? What have I forgotten? And some of the tangents that he goes off on or like some of the backstory or like kind of added things about like the the uh, human sacrifices that they do later on is um, something that stood out to me. But you do have a point that like it is it he doesn't really go beyond the shit. I keep hitting the mic. Sorry. <laughs> You're um, fine. <laughs> he, he doesn't go fully beyond the um, real kind of panic in the care in the narrator character that he probably could because it is overall just like it, like the whole time like especially at the end when the when Tyler has disappeared and now the narrator has to do this all this like crazy stuff like he's in the car with a mechanic or he's doing that human sacrifice or he's trying to find Marla or now he's back in the support groups like it is kind of just like this feeling of like oh shit this is where I am right now and it doesn't really go beyond that it is more of uh you are right that in terms of like the actual writing style, it is very much like, isn't this crazy? Like, this is kind of crazy. <laughs> and I think there's an energy to the writing that makes it I'm like interested. Like when the, I had 20 pages left in the book, I, w- I just like I honestly couldn't stop because I was like, is this how this ends? I don't remember this exactly, but it's like really different. And I I appreciate the energy, but you are right that it is very surface level for the most part. I think yeah. the movie really brings in a lot of other stuff. And I do agree that like there absolutely should be. Um, you know, media for like, I, I think Fight Club, the book and Fight Club, the movie, both in their own ways do represent this, this type of media that is introduced to you at a certain age where you're like, oh, books or movies can be something way more than just either something um, for school or like on a personal level or like either academic or, you know, just entertaining. Um, and I, I, mean, I think the movie lives on as one of like one of the greats, but it is they do have this um, reputation and position of like this is something that is introduced to you at a specific age and it opens your perspective to other possibilities about um, about the their respective mediums. And I do think it's interesting. You do bring up a good point of like, I don't know how Palinuk is going to be received. Like if a new Chuck Palinuk book came out next year, 
Mm-hmm. I'm very curious as to see how the reception or build up behind that would be or like just what that would be because you're yeah. right I don't, I don't think there's many other i think fight club does live on it's like okay yes that's kind of his signature work as like the one that we all talk about um but I, i'm curious as like years pass what other stuff like could really kind of stick out in terms of his um in terms of his like library of work and how that recontextualize a new work that comes his way. I don't know how we talk about him. You know, most people just kind of cite this. I don't, I don't really know what his, or if he's even really kind of in the popular consciousness, you know, in in that way. So I'd be interested if like, whenever that happens, if he ever, you know, whenever he writes his next book, I'm very curious as to how the conversation around that um, would go. Yeah. Well, like I said, I read uh, beautiful you, which Mm -hmm. I think at the time when I read it, it was his most latest novel Mm -hmm. and uh, I could be wrong, but it was just not good. Um, and I think, yeah, uh, I think when he tries too hard to do like social commentary, it just falls on its face. Um, and he leans Mm -hmm. too far into being absurd and shocking. Uh, but, I think with Fight Club, uh, I believe it was his first novel. Um, he was writing mm-hmm. short stories before that, and this was a short story before it was a novel. Uh, I think he he kind of had like lightning in a bottle. With he got really lucky that as he was sort of figuring himself out as a writer, uh, the social commentary aspect is kind of uh, veiled enough through the like cool. Tyler Durden poll um, that it was enough for people to talk about and to continue to talk about. But I think uh, from his later works, cause I think he had, he has written a book pretty recently. I think like 2018 mm-hmm. he was putting out a book um, and I read a little bit about that and it sounded not good. Um, <laughs> and so I think the more that he has tried to in his career do social commentary as a, uh, the supposed like biggest uh, aspect of the novel, it's kind of falling on its face. Uh, Cause that's what I liked about haunted was it wasn't really him trying to do any kind of like commentary. It was really just short horror stories. Uh, and I think as like a horror writer or something like that, he, he does shine. Um, but yeah, like you said, I, I'm curious what the legacy of his work will be. I, I think it's kind of obvious that it will forever be Fight Club and mm-hmm. Guts. Not even Haunted, but Guts. Because yeah. um, I, I don't know many people who have read Haunted its entirety, but I know many people who have read that short story. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, well, he's also done two graphic uh, novel sequels to fight club oh my god yeah (laughs) which i I don't know why i don't know like i don't know i I don't know Um, yeah i don't don't know why (laughs) fight club 3 came out in 2019 oh my god like why that's just sad yeah yeah and i think that there's a lot of relevant social commentary around the work as a whole i think most of it comes from um the in retrospect, like especially oh, yeah. realizing where we are now, almost like, you know, 20 plus years after uh, after the work initially came out in the mid to late 90s. I think that it is kind of a if you just read it, like I'm sure if you just read that in 96, you'd be like, yeah, this makes sense. Like, I see where he pulls this from. But now it's like, especially with the movie of the talking about 
um, you know, this this generation that's kind of built on anger, lost dads and like and uh, materialism and how that leads to, um, you know, trying to like the, the whole thing in the book where it's like, you know, when you're younger, your dad is your ver- your vision of God. And so mm. when your dad leaves, what does that tell you about God? And then you're constantly kind of searching for that. And so that then brings on this whole gener- this whole other generation of people who are you know, who, uh, anger is the main kind of form of emotion that they have to like to lead them through life. And there's a lot of uh, obviously th- it, I just think the movie I kind of want to bring the movie in now because sure, like they yeah. just it's so much more streamlined. Like they knew what to take out. They knew what to like where to they like kind of reposition certain points of dialogue to make it a monologue for Tyler. And it's all the same point. And it, they're not. Mm-hmm. All, it's like it just feels more um, well structured. Like I and I, I like yeah. that it I like the the structure of the movie too. Yeah, you'll know this. Was this David Fincher's first film? No, it was his third. He did Alien Three first, and then okay. he did Seven, and then oh. he did Fight Club. Okay. Um. Well, because apparently, from what I was reading, Fight Club the film was like a critical failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and commercial total flop. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting because, as far as I can tell, the novel was a pretty instant hit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think Palunic had Palunic <laughs> had <laughs> critics, um, but he like always has and always will. Um, but yeah, so I wasn't sure if it was David Fincher's first feature length film mm-hmm. um, because P- Palunic said in an interview he was like basically everyone who worked on Fight Club either like lost their career or had to fight to get it back. And I was like, everyone? <laughs> like Fincher? I, I, don't I don't think that, so. I don't know if that's true. I mean, Fincher at the time, you know, Seven also wasn't like a huge hit and Alien 3 was notoriously one of the most like, um, you know, studio um, meddled projects like at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't think he was trying to fight for his career back. I think he was still building his career yeah. up. Brad Pitt was at like a, was at a crazy height. Edward Norton, you know, was also had already been nominated for an Academy Award at that point. Yeah. And so no one was fighting for their career yeah that might have just been Hellenic. the more that i read of his interviews the more i was like oh my god like he's kind of annoying yeah um (laughs) he and but we could talk about that later okay before we bring the movie into our conversation let's take a quick break to hear a word from today's sponsor hey guys have you ever found yourself watching a movie and a product is being used so perfectly that you feel like you have to have it right then and there who hasn't after watching fight club your hands are bound to feel gross and grimy for more than one reason. Luckily, today's sponsor, Sunshine Soaps and Sustainable Products, has you covered. Made with natural ingredients and handcrafted to be absolutely adorable, these are soaps that can make you feel good about your body and the environment. That's right, no liposuction clinics were robbed and no mother-in-law's fat was used to make these lovely products. That's a weight off of my mind, personally. Creator Chelsea Bowles is an avid environmentalist and a crafty person, so when she had the idea to make soaps, it just made sense. She's a local business owner based in Binghamton, New York, so you know all her products are made from the heart, including the fabulous sunflower-shaped lemon lavender bar and the honey oat-scented honeycomb. And if you missed Valentine's Day, not to worry, there is still time to get special variety soaps like honey and grapefruit-scented hearts, rose vanilla roses, and chocolate-dipped strawberries. And guess what? For listening to this episode, you get an awesome discount on any and all of her lovely products. Use promo code FILMPODCAST on Sunshine Soap's Etsy page to get free shipping when you purchase two or more items, so you can have one bar for yourself and another for your evil terrorist alter ego. 
everyone's happy in the end. Visit Sunshine Soaps Sustain on Etsy.com. That's Sunshine Soaps Sustain on Etsy.com. And use promo code FILMPODCAST to get free shipping when you purchase two or more items. Sunshine Soaps Sustain on Etsy.com. Let's let's bring the movie into a larger context here. Sure. So the movie comes out in 1999, one of the most famous movie years we've talked about <laughs> in the show before. A lot of people call it the best movie year ever. Um, but I think Fight Club is one of the ones, uh, like I mentioned, that really lives on um, since its release because, like we said, it was a um, huge flop at the box office and only was was pretty polarizing for critics and it um became a kind of vhs dvd kind of cult classic where that was more of the success of it um and it'd be like you gotta you know check out fight club like go to the video store get fight club you know it kind of became like that and i i have a love for cult classics i find them a fascinating um genre just in terms of their positions and i'll talk a little bit more about like why that is a little bit later but you know this this movie, it it takes some swings. It like really kind of sh- like shoots for the fences. And Fincher is the perfect person to direct it. I'm a diehard David Fincher fan. This is actually <laughs> you're very lucky, uh, Rihanna. This is the first time we are doing a David Fincher film on oh, this wow. show. I know it's it's and it's extremely you know, surprising. He's done a few uh, adaptations. Mm-hmm. Gone Girl yeah. and the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, and uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Button is based on a short story. Uh, Another one that I did not know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what's really great about this is that it does kind of feel like this movie that when you watch it, you kind of, I don't want to say side with, but understand why it had the kind of success like the later success. Like I can watch it and kind of think about what critics were thinking about at the time and how this is very transgressive and very um, noisy of a movie in terms of the choices that it makes. And it's very, it's, 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 there's just a lot going on that you have to take in. And I think that, yeah, kind of the nihilism and the um, satire and the uh, kind of like, graphic not like necessarily in terms of blood and guts or whatever but just graphic nature of just like what is being discussed in the movie mm-hmm. is you know it's a lot to take in for your first viewing and so for it to then kind of go on this it's a honestly it's a really punk rock movie because it because of everything i just said and that and then it gets this kind of underground um revitalization but i think what's really interesting is again putting it in the context of today where it's uh you know all about you know, we have like, it's about terrorism. It's about this, you know, this, this certain generation of, you know, how materialism came into our society. And, you know, now we have, you know, after, you know, people like the proud boys and, uh, you know, neo-Nazis going through our country and obviously the insurrection earlier this year, it's like kind of like, it's impossible, I think to overstate like a lot of the really good points that this movie makes, but it's also important to bring up how this movie is often misinterpreted Yeah, how it's kind of been uh, criticized many times of being like kind of like an incel movie and like how it's uh, glorifying or, praising this kind of behavior or um, endorsing this kind of behavior. And I, I don't 
think that that um, is I, I don't think that's the case. Like, I think if you rewatch this more and more, I've seen it several times now. It's so clearly like seeped in satire, but it's also yeah. just so entertaining that it's yeah. kind of hard to kind of separate. It's like they obviously had a good time making this movie, but mm-hmm. they also know the message that they're trying to send. Yeah, and well, I wonder if, you know, it being so flashy and entertaining is why uh, it's taken, like, too seriously and the message is often misinterpreted, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> incels taking Tyler Durden's word as God, which is exactly what, like, the joke is supposed to be. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I read the uh, satire of, like, occult mentality and, you know, obviously toxic masculinity, which Palinik, uh has disavowed. He doesn't think such a thing exists. Um, and apparently the aim of the book was more to uh, be a satire of, you know, consumerism and capitalism. Um, but I think he kind of accidentally misfired and wrote a really great satire of, you know, self-improvement, cult, jock, like fraternity mentality um he himself said in an interview that he wanted to write a book that was more about the realization that you were going to live or die without truly understanding yourself uh and so i think so much of the joke comes from that i see that the narrator is trying to understand himself through this like fake guru that he mm-hmm. kind of split his personality off into and that this cult of Durden that Theron follows in the Project Mayhem, it, it basically is like a franchise in and of itself. Like all the men in the project and going to fight clubs are consumers and they're part mm-hmm. of, you know, falling for the advertising. Like they all just end up completely repeating Tyler Durden and not really thinking for themselves or understanding themselves. And they become kind of faceless and nameless, like literally. Yeah. Uh, and I think that aspect of the satire, however purposeful Palinik was trying to be with it, really especially comes through with the book. Uh, and I wonder how many people that misinterpret the movie, both like critical of it and praising it alike, um, have read the book because mm-hmm. I think in the book, it can be much more obviously read as Tyler Durden being completely absurd and ridiculous because some of the one-liners are just like mm-hmm. so edgy and like, you can't, how can you take this seriously? Mm-hmm. But then you have the movie, which is very flashy and has a really great soundtrack and oh, yeah. Brad Pitt looks great and dresses really cool. And he's obviously a great actor and delivering these uh, f- f- very edgy one-liners <laughs> yeah. with a lot of charisma and, hey, and even swagger. the Mona Lisa's falling apart. Yeah, <laughs> and so I think things like that is what contributed to people taking it seriously. And mm-hmm. by people, I do mean probably like incels uh, yeah. and thinking that Tyler Durden is supposed to be um, a straightforward self-improvement guru when mm-hmm. uh, at least the way that I see it is Tyler Durden is a satire of um, gurus of like of cult leaders basically mm-hmm. um, but again I don't know how purposeful Palinik was with that satire and you know with him saying that he doesn't think toxic masculinity exists um, I do 
think that it seems like he was aiming more for a satire of consumerism. Uh, and, but yeah, I just, I don't read it that way. That, yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting um, analysis of the, yeah, the kind of the franchisement of just the project itself and how it kind of turned from, I guess if you read it that way, it means it kind of turned from its original purpose um, mm-hmm. and then it becomes like, uh, like a, uh, it, it's almost like the hypocrisy of it, like yeah, then seeped into the, which is which is definitely interesting. But yeah, the movie is so much more. I think the movie achieves the uh, emotional intelligence that Palinuk is probably looking for way better. Oh, than- I agree. Um, and you can really see that in Edward Norton's performance. Mm-hmm. Um, he truly like breathes life into the character of the oh, narrator. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you can see the chemistry that he has with Marla Singer um, that comes through much more. Because I, I, I'm pretty sure in the book, the narrator says he basically started all this to impress Marla or he wanted to be the type of man that would impress Marla. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know if that's the emotional intellect uh, that mm-hmm. Palinik is referring to, but it it's not very fleshed out in the book. But um, Edward Norton's performance and Helena Bonham Carter's performance really bring about that, um, like you said, the emotional intelligence that I think is not fully present in the novel. Uh, and Edward Norton is just so fun to watch. Uh, oh my god! And yeah, I really enjoy uh, seeing his performance because you get to s- watch him become very enchanted with Tyler Durden, and just yeah. like be completely in awe of him in a way that doesn't quite come through in the novel. Like we have the narrator say to us, "Like I wanted Tyler, and Marla was getting Tyler's attention, and things like that." Um, but it. it you don't really get to see him become so enchanted in the novel the way that you do in the film. And again, Brad Pitt's performance brings Tyler Durden as a character to life even more uh, as someone who is so enchanting and charismatic. And it makes sense why there are people who take this movie like seriously and take mm-hmm. Tyler Durden as a serious self-improvement guru. Yeah. Yeah. I, let's stay on the performances of the three of the main three characters, because sure. I think that it's perfect casting in all. Three oh yeah. Of them, in my opinion, I think that, um, and it, it was hard for me. I think that's another reason why I had so much fun rereading the book is because like everything, even if it was like you said, like some of the one liners are obviously ridiculous. Um, <clears throat> I can just picture, Edward Norton, Helena Bonham Carter, Brad Pitt reading each thing in the book just as their character because mm-hmm. of how good they are in the movie and rewatching it yesterday. I was just enamored by them. It's it, Edward Norton is has always been one of my personal favorites. Um, Same. I love him. He is a madman and he is like so like good at just being the I think I mean, a, a big part of it is that he really has to have like be able to nail a monotone voice. Mm-hmm. And the voiceover that they add with it um, just gives an, a new layer to it of like that. That all that stuff is really taken from you know opening lines of the of chapters of the book. Mm-hmm. So it um, it makes sense. But he like really has to sell it of like you know I think the main line of the the character that like really kind of sticks out for me in terms of 
telling you who he is, at least where he is in the beginning of the book is when, you know, he's going from airport to airport and like going to like job to job and he goes, this is your life and it's ending one minute at a time. And I think the way that he sells that in his monotone really like kind of echoes throughout the rest of the movie. And you're right. When he meets Tyler on that plane, you get that great shot of when he's just looking, he's just kind of listening to him and he yeah, gets this little smirk on his face. It on his face. Yeah. yeah. He's like, Oh damn, this is a, this is an interesting guy. And I love that. And the, yeah, their relationship kind of immediately is, is really felt, but you, I, I think you get a good sense early on of what his, like of what his life is like and how he, like where he is at this, at this point of like buying like all this shit, then his apartment that he doesn't want, or just, he becomes a slave to the Ikea catalog. And, um, you know, why he's going to meetings and, you know, meeting meatloaf at a testicular cancer <laughs> um, meeting and then how Marla just comes in and just like shakes that up for him. I think mm-hmm. it's a really well done way to introduce you not only to the world, but also just the whole mindset of the movie and the you know, he has this routine, he has things that keep him up. And then this one person comes in and shakes it up and you get this, this really great character moments for the first like 20 minutes. It's mm-hmm. really well done. Um, so yeah, I, I think Edward Norton's great. And Brad Pitt is just, ah, uh, he's perfect. <laughs> he's so perfect. He's so cool. He's so like, that's the thing that I, th- I, I was reading that like one of the, um, potential castings for this movie for Tyler Durden was Russell Crowe. And oh, I think Russell, it, Russell Crowe's a great actor, but he doesn't give off this vibe of a, of a young leader of like, of, of, of like, you know, uh, older millennials kind of thing. Like you yeah. can't, that's not really what Russell Crowe can sell. You know, he has to, um, Russell Crowe feels like he's been in a Boston shipyard his whole life, you know, <laughs> but like Brad Pitt is cool. He's really fucking hot. He's really well spoken. Like he can talk really fast and just rattle off like facts about like, you know, you know, do you know if you mix equal parts of gasoline and frozen orange juice concentrate, you can make napalm. Just say that like so just like throw that out there. Just let's mm-hmm. throw that thought out into the world. And he sells it. He's so good and he's so charismatic. And you're just kind of like because the whole movie is just like, yeah, I understand why people like this guy and why yeah. this kind of grows into this greater legend and greater um you know, just greater threat than they had expected. Yeah. So I, I love what he does. Yeah. And uh, the chemistry that Brad Pitt and Edward Norton have is very palpable. And again, just really fun to watch and something that I think is missing from the book. We get a scene where they're um, hanging out in like a car on like a, a, a used car lot or something. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of spending time together. Um but I feel like that's all we really see. Uh, but in the film, we get to spend more time with the two of them interacting with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's just, it's so fun to watch. Um, and I think the film made a lot of smart decisions um, when it comes to like exposition and storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that I especially loved was when they're uh, explaining Tyler's night jobs and it, it's framed as a fun little like infomercial type of staging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just so great. And uh, just, yeah, just a great little nugget of storytelling. And <laughs> it, it keeps it moving. It keeps it on its feet because, uh, as you said, the book is kind of one note. 
And a Palunic Palinic as a writer is just kind of uh showing rather than telling. Or mm-hmm. wait, that's wrong. That's not right. Telling rather than showing. Mm-hmm. Um, Marla Singer sells her jeans, uh, but then in the film, you know, great moment of Edward Norton talking to, or the narrator talking to Marla while they walk to the dry cleaners where she takes the jeans, and then they walk to the place where she sells the jeans. You can't have both parasites. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, and yeah, and you, you get to have that conversation while there's that physical action of moving around, but then also that like exposition and storytelling, whereas in the novel, and I think this is kind of a shortcoming, that conversation about who gets what meeting that just kind of occurs between the two of them. And I think they're just like standing there, like talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would have looked so boring uh, yeah. on screen. And so I think, you know, they made really smart decisions of just, it, there's constant movement, constant, just constantly going from place to place or just walking around or using the space that you're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I think that's where Palinik falls short as a writer. Um, at least in this book, I can't quite remember how he navigated it and like haunted or some of his other works that I've read. Um, but it, as a writer, you know, you can create space. Y- you can't see it, but your reader can feel it. And I think mm-hmm. your reader, if they're, kind of paying attention can notice when you're not utilizing the space that you're making. Um, like the big house on paper street, Pelinick does a well enough job explaining its size and, and its look and its feel. But then a lot of the conversation just seems to happen like in the kitchen or like, you don't really know where Tyler and the narrator are having this conversation and it feels very static and flat. Uh, but the film, it, just constant movement, constant using the space, and it's so fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that I do agree that like at times, uh, Pollen, I, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't P. even know. <laughs> Chucky P. Yeah, sometimes he does like, um, yeah, the, the description of how Paper Street, like how the house is like when it rains and how it's just kind of dripping down on everything and making the wood expand, like all that is also in the book, but or is also in the movie. And that's a good sense of space. But yeah, most of the time it is kind of this, um, it's kind of quick where it's just like in the basement of lose. Like that's all you really get about the, like where they start fight club. And most of the time it is kind of just, um, and I, I know I said I like that it is kind of a, in terms of pacing a stream of consciousness, but that's really the main space that you just are is that you're just like you just feel you're just in this guy's head. Yeah, and that's kind of it. Whereas, um, yeah, Fincher really gives you like there's so much visual. I I don't want to say candy because the movie's really gross looking, but <laughs> oh it's, god, I um, hate the color grading. It, but it's. Uh, but there's enough like movement and energy to like and everything and like it's dingy and it's like there's um there's variety like and also in the house you know like when Norton is just like reading the Reader's Digest thing and that's where he gets the you know I am Jack's gallbladder but like mm-hmm. Brad Pitt is like going around on a bike like yeah through the it's rooms. so fun <laughs> yeah, like hey man what are you reading like yeah <laughs> it's extremely fun and that's just not present in the book like that kind of energy mm-hmm. uh. And I think Fight Club is a really shining example of a film adaptation done right, oh, where yeah. uh, Fincher is really making up for Palinuk's, um shortcomings. 
and yeah. kind of filling in the blanks. Um, because something, you know, that I noticed when watching it was that the story of the narrator's birthmark is completely cut out of the film. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, I wonder why they did that, because that's a great little character moment. And in the novel, that and the Blarney Stone, uh, both of right, which are uh-huh. cut out of the film, uh, are really the only true moments of characterization that we get from the narrator, in my opinion. Um, yeah. I mean, we get his backstory about his father, and uh, he he likes to collect stuff, he can't sleep. But really, that's the only like really deeper characterization that we get. And uh, they aren't present in the film. And I was like, I wonder why, because I really like those. And then I thought about it, and I was like, well, Edward Norton's performance gives us the character. Mm-hmm. Like, he truly just, oh, it's so good. Like, yeah. it can't be overstated. And we get the really nice, like, visual storytelling of him, you know, flipping through uh, pamphlets or whatever and finding the meetings to go to. And you get to see all the different names he uses. When yeah. he goes to different meetings, which I don't think Palinik ever actually like gives fake names. He's just kind of like, mm-hmm. uh, I never give my real name at, at the meetings. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, and I, I think that's something that should have been fleshed out more in the book. Like, because that, that, that's character. Um, the little names like Cornelius, like it's so goofy. Yeah. Um, but like and- Bob knows, like it, Bob like thinks it's real. Like he's like, go ahead. Cornelius? Cornelius like he like just kind of <laughs> accepts it it's like who the fuck is named Cornelius yeah. in also, 1999 <laughs> casting like meatloaf is just a great choice he's so fun Bob. it is I can't think of a single person who would be better I know. for Bob it, it's submitted in my head that it's meatloaf he is I mean okay on a personal note I'm a humongous fan of the Bad Out of Hell album. Oh, That's yeah. the only Meatloaf music that I listen to, but that album just kind of does something for me, which is kind of ironic just because the, the, that album is kind of the quintessential Angry Young Man rock album. That's just <laughs> all that that album's about. And so to have him in this movie as kind of the older, lovable kind of... Um, they, he, they say in the book that he was kind of the bright light in the center of, uh, of the group. And so to have him in that character is kind of ironic, but he's so good. Like, yeah, it's like, oh, they may have to go in and like uh, drain the liquid more. Like when he says yeah. like, crying is so funny and he's so great, but he also has this kind of crazy glint in his eye. Like when he sees him, uh, when, when he sees the narrator, like after like 45 minutes of not being in the movie, he's just like, it's me, Bob. <laughs> but like he has died. this, cr- <laughs> yeah. uh, no, he's fantastic. Um, I-, I wanted to say you brought up something, uh, it, Oh, about the the Barney Stone and the footprint stuff. Like, I think that I, I agreed that when I was reading that, I was like, Oh, this is really interesting, especially the Barney Stone or the Blarney Stone, um, uh, story, because that is paralleled with him getting the, um, the kiss scar, on his yeah. hand and the yeah. way that it flip-flops back and forth is a really interesting kind of you know obviously in a movie like like in a movie it's like a cross cut like yeah. and that gives it like that was some it was very well written in terms of the energy like yeah, i was like this is going and moving and it feels tense and it's kind yeah. of it feels like jumping back and forth in this man's psyche um but you're right that you don't really need that because you have the setup of norton of the he's going to his place he's in that like arctic cave and there's the penguin and then it's kind of interrupted again later when marla's there you know and then when he tries to kind of escape to it like again and again 
But what's so great about Norton is that he gives this character, you can really see a progression of the character. He goes to some really high highs and some low lows. Like you can see him like in the beginning, obviously he's you know sleep deprived and just kind of skating through. And he says like in, in the bar and with, you know, Brad Pitt, he's, you know, he's just like, I don't I, like, what am I, what am I going to do? Like, I don't want to do this anymore. And he's just kind of done. And that's when Brad Pitt comes in. But then when he is in the midst of fight club, he's, uh, you know, talking to, he does that whole thing of what about his boss where he's like, you, uh, you know, I think that if or where he threatens his boss, yeah, yeah. With the shotgun thing, that's crazy. <laughs> but then at the end when he's just like, manic and having like a full-on panic attack for 20 minutes because he knows of how fucked up this is and he's kind of like i don't want to say fully changed but he's definitely like changed since the beginning of the movie Mm -hmm. like it feels like actual full character progression that you can see and track and really soak in yeah um and i agree that in the book there's just he's just kind of put in situations at times yeah and you know the whole blarney stone thing and I i forgot too that it was introduced during the whole uh, lie on the hand thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not only is it like good characterization, but it's just a very nice literary uh, technique of, you know, kind of the juxtaposition of like each stupid initiation type thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because the whole Blarney Stone, he he goes with a bunch of other like drunk men to go pee on the Blarney Stone. It's kind of like the the fraternity jocks, like, like boys, like boys mm-hmm. being boys type of thing. And uh, then the whole lie on his hand, that's like another initiation into this total boys club. Um, yeah. And it's things like that where I'm like, is is Palinik sure he wasn't aiming for a critique of max- masculinity? Like, surely mm-hmm. he was. No, because, um, you know, he was a closeted gay man when he wrote this. Mm. Um, he didn't come out until years later. Uh, and so... I feel like, you know, I I read the book with the knowledge that he is gay, but I feel like it's impossible for it to not be a a critique of, like, masculinity. Yeah. Um, Well, that puts the whole Tyler being naked on a beach and moving, like, wood logs to, like, form a hand shadow into a a different context. Yeah, I I forgot that that also was a thing that uh, wasn't present in the film. I think it would have felt really kind of, like, clunky and weird. Uh, in the film yeah. I, I think like introducing him as the single serving friend on a plane just yeah. got the job done and made it like you said more streamlined and way easier um and with the whole like sitting in the hand of perfection thing it, it's just it's so like lofty and uh, and pretentious yeah, i was gonna say and it's, I, it, when, and, when i read that i was like that's kind of that's pretty pretentious like yeah it's and and like- i maybe I'm just like throwing Pelinic a bone, but I think it's meant to be pretentious. Like Tyler Durden is meant to be just so like, uh, extravagant and like decadent. Um, and yeah, I think if that were in the film, it, it would have felt really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, there's already enough to be said about like, especially, I mean, obviously before, you know, the twist at the end of, is this kind of more of a homosexual relationship or if there's something underneath it that they're not really exploring or purposefully like how like at times, you know, when, when they're talking and the narrator is like brushing his teeth and Tyler's just sitting in the bath, you know, like Mm -hmm. smoking a cigarette or then when he opens the door and Marla's just there and he's just there naked or something like there's been critiques about it. There's been discussions about it, but I, I don't really think that that, um, 
I think that would have added maybe something to kind of to that conversation. But I agree that like it would have just felt too clunky. Like he comes in perfectly in the middle of this of this world and this time in this guy's life. It feels organic. It feels like because we already also see him talking to some other random person sitting next to him. Yeah, it's not like every time he's on a plane, he's sitting next to an empty seat and then he automatically just is sitting next to Tyler and then it becomes, yeah, single serving friend or something like that. Um, Which, by the way, is something I wanted to bring up as a big difference. I personally feel I, I, I don't know if I don't know if this is valid or not, but I went in to the movie the first time I watched it, not knowing the twist. Yeah, neither and, did I. I saw it for the first time when I was like 13. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so, yeah. so I didn't even know it was a book. Mm-hmm, yeah, it hadn't been spoiled for me. So I, when I when the twist happens in the movie, I was like, what? Whoa. No way. <laughs> and when I read the book, I knew that the ending was different. I didn't know how the and how it was different. But for me, rereading the book, I was reading it and I was like, how did I not know the twist? It, it's kind of like really telegraphed like yeah. in the book and it's like and it's and it's uh, telegraphed in the movie a little bit but it's so much easier for them to get away with it in the fact that they have two people in the same room and the situations that they find themselves in are so crazy that you have to focus in on them that it yeah. kind of makes you forget of this possibility that they may be the same person but in the book it feels so kind of like out the gate it kind of feels like that's what the twist is gonna be yeah i i can't quite remember in the book you you probably remember better than i do because you've you've read it twice um the narrator does the whole punching himself to kind of blackmail his boss thing mm-hmm. i know tyler does it um and then the narrator does it after tyler does it yes yeah uh-huh. and i think like that scene both in the book and the movie are like the biggest uh tells because the narrator mm-hmm. is like, for some reason, I thought of my first fight with Tyler when he's mm-hmm. punching himself. Uh, also, that scene is just so funny in the movie. Ever oh, Gordon. yeah. I love when he looks what are you back doing? at the glass. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the glass shelf. And he's like, no. Um, just so great. Yeah. And again, on the topic of streamlining, I think it was really smart of the film to it just completely nicks like, Tyler doing it first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just have the narrator do it and to like blackmail his boss because that's another huge difference is that uh, spoiler for anybody who hasn't read the book uh, in the book he kills his boss which is pretty right. wild mm-hmm. um, but in the movie they do that nice little like he just blackmails him and then the rest of the story can happen Yeah, and uh-huh. you know Palinik doesn't really uh, do that in the novel like we see the narrator keep showing up to work and somehow not losing his job until he (laughs) finally kills his boss. Uh, And and I don't think that's like faulty storytelling. I think that is just another thing of it being so absurd and Mm -hmm. very clearly uh, a marker for satire. Um, But I can see why the filmmakers would want to make it something more, uh, I guess like realistic or grounded of like, how's he not losing his job? Because I'm sure people would complain about that or something. Yeah, and I, I think they make the boss character so much more of a of like a C plot antagonist in the movie because he kind of in the book kind of fades into the background. And you're right, they do focus a little bit more on uh, Tyler going up against his boss and the problems that he's facing with or just causing shenanigans in the catering job. Like we don't yeah. really see that really in the movie, and I think it was for the better because I think it would have been just too overblown. Like. Here's the thing with Fincher is he's he 
knows where the energy needs to go for each yeah. single shot of the of the overall film. And so he knows like if something's going to like really disrupt the pacing of everything. Like cuz for most of the movie you kind of forget that Norton is also employed in the catering company until later when they kind of um when not kind of when they uh um kidnap the commissioner or something and they like threaten to cut his balls off and he's obviously there um but in the book he's like working with tyler you know and he's um getting into arguments with other people that way but like in the movie norton's other like real antagonist is his one boss at his office job and that comes back a few times and it's and I like that it ends on that note and they do give a little bit of a nod to the book of like you know the computer bomb whereas that's one thing one of their assignments that they do is they break into a like a uh a, sh- a store case like a showcase of like a bunch of televisions and computers and make them into homemade bombs that way I do agree though that blackmailing him is I mean it's already an absurd concept mm-hmm. but it's believable in the world of the movie where the timing works out with the, where the security guards come and he's like in front of him and makes his boss's <laughs> hands all bloody, you know? So it's like obvious that he would get what he wants at that point. Um, but yeah, I do agree that it is, uh, they, they have to toe a fine line of like, yes, this movie's absurd. Yes. It's satirical. Yes. It's very transgressive, but you also kind of have to, you have to be sucked into the story regardless. Yeah. So they kind of have to, um, you know, uh, lean on practicality just a little bit you know and i think i think they do it beautifully uh i can't tell if this was like a concerted effort on the film's part or if this was just a result of again streamlining the story and and keeping that energy and pacing going and uninterrupted but i feel like the narrator in the book is uh like much more maniacal and like evil (laughs) Mm -hmm. because he he like murders people in the book straight up he he Mm -hmm. shoots that one guy at like the whodunit party oh Um, yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and so he just straight up killed somebody and then he kills his boss and uh in the book he's the one who does the human sacrifice raymond Mm -hmm. thing and you know he doesn't kill that guy um but the movie very purposefully has like tyler do it and you know that's a moot point he's the one doing it but like the narrator as we know is pretty like disgusted and shocked that tyler would do such a thing and so i thought that was interesting that um you know in the film the narrator is a bit more sympathetic and kind of more like an everyman and less insane and he's not killing people (laughs) yeah Uh uh-huh yeah for sure i think that also kind of leads into the um believability of the twist because obviously one of the more famous twists of you know of like any media is that there's that tyler and the narrator are the same person but i think that in the movie like i said there are they they have lines like that are in the book like i know this because tyler knows this or you know i um tyler and marla were never in the same room together and Mm -hmm. tyler says one thing and he echoes it um, sometimes I would say things that Tyler would say. Yeah. But, Tyler again, the beauty of, me. yeah. And, but the beauty of, again, the beauty of Fincher is that he knows how to really guide the audience. He knows how to make something entertaining and um, interesting enough to where you're able to focus on that and that other stuff. Like you hear it, it's there. Like you can use it as evidence. Like we kind of set it up, but you forget about it in the background because like everything else that happens is so interesting and so 
strange also like the man's a very obviously like uh you know strange and uh uh kind of perverted director he says like his motto is that everyone is per everyone is is a pervert so like he kind of leaves with that and uh but he's you know, if you just hear those two things, you know, Tyler and Marlon were never in the same room together. I know this because Tyler knows this. You would kind of be like, oh, okay, they're the same person. But they don't, they focus on it just enough to where it's there. And then the rest of the time, you're just like, holy shit, what's going to happen next? Like, where's the next scene going? Like, oh my God, they're going to shoot somebody? Like, what? Like, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. And, it, and it fades in. And then when it happens, you're like, oh my God, it makes so much sense. Like, of course. Like, how did I not see that? That's so smart. And it's so well done. And... Um, I agree that I think that the the they do the human sacrifice and doing the um, like having Tyler do the human sacrifice. They're obviously not shooting Raymond K. Hustle. Like that's a very important scene. That is where the story starts to shift a little bit. Yeah. Like that's where the narrator starts to kind of think like, oh, this is okay, going this too is, far. This is going somewhere somewhere else as opposed to having him do it. Whereas having him do it feels like this. It, it kind of feels random because it's so late in the book. You know, it's so close Yeah, I to thought the end. that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it, in the book, I don't think the, the whole this is going too far thing really comes up until Bob is murdered. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But in the movie, you know, we do get the sense of the narrator being pretty uncomfortable um, mm-hmm. much earlier on with the human sacrifice scene. Yeah. And the whole thing about like... Um, you know, they keep Tyler and the narrator together as much as possible, like making that relationship, you know, really sound. And then once Tyler's gone, you know, he's gone. Like he's, you know, I mean, like gone in that, like the the veil is lifted, you know, yeah. then it's like, oh, this is actually the world of where we're living. And so but like, yeah, the murder of Bob, you know, happens in the movie after um it's like I haven't seen Tyler in like five days and now he's just trying to find him. And that happens. And that's when the, his name is Robert Paulson. Things come up, but it, again, that feels like a whole change of sticking with the, the, uh, the narrator's mentality of like, Holy fuck. What is going on? What is happening? This is too much and that. And he actually has an emotional moment. Like he's like, Oh my God, it's Bob. Yeah. Like this is a person like what? And that's so well done. And, because uh, then it starts to feel like once you get lost in the chaos of how so many people are in that house and doing like 18 different things and just like rushing past them, you're you're kind of on the side of the narrator where you're like, fuck, this is this isn't good. This is dumb. Yeah. I don't like this anymore. And um, again, with like the visuals being so good and and really breathing life into where Palunic kind of uh, didn't do the best job doing so in the novel, like, you know, in the book. Palinik says the house on Paper Street was a living, breathing thing. And I think that line is said word for word in the film. But you mm-hmm. get to see all the people like moving around and it's so crowded and they're drinking beer. Like, it's just so ridiculous. And yeah, another moment of just doing a really amazing job. Um, yeah. I, ma- I totally, making the scene. Yeah, I totally agree. And also just like, um, like, I don't know. I can't. I. I can't stress enough. I know I'm such a fanboy of him, but like how well Fincher, like he was like just kind of the perfect person to kind of breathe this, breathe this kind of 
Um, he brings in he's such a funny director too. like he brings in mm-hmm. some humor. He's really good with the satire, but he's also a music video director. So he has the Dust Brothers just kind of go absolutely ham like they're yeah, doing the, the fucking is like, so fun. Yeah, like like I love the start. Like there's like a classical music play and then a record scratch and then like that's like really well done. Uh, he's really great. Like the the CGI actually still looks pretty good oh, i man. would say I, agree. I i think it dates it so bad and you i think, think so something yeah it, it's very it feels very like late 90s early like pre 9-11 cinema uh mm-hmm. like spider-man i think and it's like a superhero movie so there's gonna be cheese but uh raimi's first spider-man movie right. uses mm-hmm. the similar like swooping cgi and i just oh i hate it <laughs> there's there's a lot of swoops it, i do agree that like that technique is a very lost kind of technique but i don't know it, it didn't take me out of, it didn't fully take me out of it just because of how kind of crazy I, I i will say the one thing that did kind of take me out of it actually is the weird kind of opacity crazy like marla singer sex scene that they do yeah just, i remember like hey and and i i was wondering like what their reasoning for doing that is i'm like you know obviously there's like a degree of separation that the narrator is feeling because he's not aware that he's the one having sex with marla singer mm-hmm. um so like is that what they were going for to make it seem kind of removed and like the out of body yeah. experience or like are they playing on the like insomnia aspect? Like when you don't sleep, everything feels very far away. Like, it, or does, are they just doing it because it looks cool? Uh, like I, I didn't understand what the point was and I didn't understand what the point was of the, like, like on a tiny scale traveling CGI where it's like going through the gun and going through mm. like his stove or it just, it feels very uh, gimmicky. That's fair. That's and I fair. I think it dates it. That's fair. No, that's that's fair. I, I I the one I do agree that the the Marla Singer one. It's probably is the insomnia thing, and like not sh- really sure if it's his mind or if it's Tyler's part of his mind. Yeah. Like the, it, it is kind of. Uh, it just looks weird, you know. Yeah. Um. But uh, speaking of Marla Singer, we haven't mentioned uh, Helena Bottom Carter yet. Who, uh, for whatever reason, has like there's a lot of there's some there were some criticisms around her performance. Oh, what uh, kind of criticisms? It, well, I, I think they didn't. They just like people just weren't as big of a fan of her at the time, or didn't really have a good sense of who she was as an actress, and they weren't sure if you know if this was a right role for her. I think she's phenomenal. I think she's yeah. fantastic. And I also didn't know she was in this movie the first time I watched it. So when she's so when she popped up and she's like, "This is cancer, right?" I was like, "Holy fuck, she's in this movie!" <laughs> like, what? and she's so good. She's so funny. Like, is and so good at just like being this kind of antagonistic, like poking you in the shoulder kind of force to the narrator. And like, you're all, she's just like, no, I want, uh, uh, I want bowel cancer or like, yeah. you know, all these like, um, you know, ways that they kind of go against each other, but also again, their relationship grows and builds and has like, a has life between, between the two of them yeah. and how she keeps kind of like coming back. And, uh, you know, I, I think she just, is fantastic. I yeah. I love her performance. I I might have said this earlier, but I and if I did, then I'm just reiterating. Uh, I don't think Pelinic is particularly good at writing characters, like really vivid characters. I, I think again, the strength and pull of his writing comes from just the outrageous concept or, mm-hmm. or gimmick. Gimmick sounds really cynical and negative, but that's just what I'll call it. Um, and I think. 
Marla Singer is a much stronger character in the film, again, through Helena Bonham Carter's performance, but also she has much more of a presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's just, like, funny, and and you can see where the appeal comes from with, like, her charm and charisma, um, even though, and I think they say this, too, she probably, like, reeks of, like, cigarettes and, like, generally <laughs> like, gross and unwell and, like, yeah. lives in a shitty motel. Um and all that reads is again very like absurd in the book, okay. um, whereas in the film, she really brings the character to life and, and makes the character, and you can see what is alluring about her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree, and I think that um, it, it's a, such a different energy. Like, I also think that it's well done in the fact that she brings out this other side of toxic masculinity, this masculine behavior that like, and highlights something about the, the narrator's character of when he's going to these meetings and this is his way of getting sleep and finding um, sanctity in these other people's pain and this lie mm-hmm. that he's built for himself. And then she comes in doing the same thing. And obviously uh, as, as a woman, this is then, making him just be like she's the fucking problem how fucking dare she she's like she's she's not sick she doesn't deserve to be here she doesn't need this she's just like and he's so mad like he's just so angry at her she is sick she she has she has like lumps on her breast right yeah cancer Um, Mm -hmm. because i think in the book they make it much more clear that she like currently has like a lump um Mm -hmm. And I think in the book, they might have mentioned that, like, she had lumps before and things like that. Um, I think in the film, it, it's not as clear that she is somebody who has, like, dealt with most likely or, like, the quiet knowing that she has cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, you know, if anything, she has more of a right to be at those support groups than the narrator. Right. Uh, which I think makes it again even more kind of funny that he is so angry at her and like thinks she's a faker yeah. with it when she actually does have some right to be at uh, you know support groups for cancer patients. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. And again, the the fact of like again that's like another seed of toxic masculinity that we see often of just like your territory. projecting territory. It's very territorial. It's very. Uh, yeah, this person's the problem and I'm just going to be so mad at her the entire movie and just hate her. And, um, you know, like he doesn't really like in the movie, it's so much more clear, like how he kind of comes around to enjoying being with Marla. Yeah. And in the book, it just kind of happens. It just kind of happens. It kind of because like at the end, he's like yelling at him and like you killed this person you turned my mother into soap that's something that's taken out of the book about yeah. how they kill her mother and use her as well, soap, they don't which kill I'm- her they it's much more absurd she the mother gets liposuction and sends oh, the right. fat to marla right okay yeah i like the way they do that in the movie like way better yeah, i don't again, think that's a detail that needs that needs to be there um but yeah like at the end like yeah she's just kind of she's still like not on his side you know she's not they're they're not in it together by the end by the end of the movie it's like very clear that like this is a this feels like a i don't want to say like a full-on couple but they find like they find uh they confide in in each other by the end of the movie and it it just feels so much more um realized and i I like that um so 
I, I kind of want to transition into analysis here because a lot of it has to do with the twist of the ending and the differences uh, in the uh, in the book and the and the movie. So, what do you think about that? Do you want to move to sure. analysis? Yeah. Okay. So the ending of the book basically has the narrator going back to a certain support group. And like I just said, Marla's kind of yelling at him about like killing the person at the murder mystery, um, at the murder mystery party. And then, uh, you know, turning, uh, her mother's fat and into soap. And then everything kind of becomes very chaotic. And then the next chapter it revealed is that he's in, um, this mental asylum, uh, because at the end of the previous chapter, he shoots himself and now he's in a, a mental institution. He says like, you know, angels wear scrubs and rubber, mm-hmm. f- rubber sold shoes. And, um, you know, he's, there's still like fight club still exists because a patient comes and says to him, you know, like we're waiting for you We we can't wait to see what you do next. And that's yeah. where the book ends. Um, and, and then Marla the, will write him. Yes, exactly. Marla is going to write. And then, then the movie ends with this whole, big terrorist plot to blow up uh, the credit card companies and banks in the city and then create, you know, total like reset to zero chaos. And they try and the narrator tries to stop it, but then it eventually ends up happening and they Marla and the narrator stand on the top of this building as where's my mind by the pixies is playing in the background. And that's where the story ends uh, for that. Obviously, so different Mm -hmm. couldn't be for like i remember when i was reading the book this last time and i i was reading it and i was like i knew the book was different i didn't realize it was like that different it's literally like black and white endings to uh to this story and it's so fascinating because like i i think that the book ending makes sense in the fact that again the book was all just this stream of consciousness from this one character so having it kind of continue that way but in the movie having this behavior in this all of this stuff that's been building to actually happen right before your eyes and have him say you've met me at a very strange time in my life with the one of the best uses of a you know a song in a movie with the pixies where's my mind like that feels like an exclamation mark at the end of this story where the the book kind of ends just on like a period yeah i i think it's a in the film it's a way stronger ending and something that i was thinking about was the last time i saw fight club i was like maybe 14 um and i always remembered the you met me at a very strange time in my life line um but the ending of fight club i i always knew what it was i like the, the, the novel mm-hmm. uh, I knew what it was I knew how it was different from the film and I finished the book like a couple of days ago and I realized while watching the movie that I like couldn't even remember the exact pattern of events in the ending mm-hmm. uh, and I was like wow so literally it's like less memorable in my opinion uh, mm-hmm. than the film and apparently Chuck Palahniuk has said that he liked this ending better uh, in the film I, I couldn't like find that I mean I believe it Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I really like, I, I think there's a stronger thematic element, uh, in the film with the ending of it all just goes out from under him and project mayhem is a success and it's all going to keep carrying on. Uh, and you know, that's kind of similar in the book too, cause it's clear that project mayhem and like fight club is still kind of like going on. Like there are people carrying the torch, mm-hmm. um, 
But, you know, again, the nice visual storytelling in the film of just those buildings falling down and he's holding Marla Singer's hand. And uh, it, I, I think it's such a nice little, his life is going to continue to fall apart, basically. Like everything yeah. is reset mm-hmm. to just complete chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in in the book, it, it's much more like insulated and it's yeah. like just him in the mental hospital. Um, mm-hmm. And so getting to see an ending on like such a grand scale, like you said, it, it, more of an exclamation point. Um, and more memorable flat out. So I, I think it did it way better. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that it it, it carries the style and the um the like um the pacing and the energy that it starts with all the way through to the end. Because, mm-hmm. you know, this is like I, I can't stress enough how how transgressive like it is, because again, you start with you start with the ending of the movie. You have a lot of uh, examples of kind of um, like quick, quick cuts, like quick insert shots of Tyler throughout the beginning before he meets him, like in, in a single frame. You have those. You have the um, the freeze frame when he's fighting himself. Like you have that. All of these kind of crazy very like not mainstream filmmaking choices and even like satire on like when he's like says like that apartment was everything like I lost myself and he says I'd like to thank the academy like yeah. he has such a <laughs> you know kind of uh jab at mainstream Hollywood filmmaking and then to have it end on this crazy this awesome song and then have it like you know them holding hands collapsing in the background and then to cut the the dick shot in the end like they do in the reels is like just the perfect final thing to leave you with because it feels it feels complete it feels like this was a singular story made by a group of people who knew exactly what they were doing and um had faith in the changes that they made and everything suits this story whereas with the book it's this one event and the energy's like ramping up and ramping up and ramping up and it's just between him and Marla a relationship that isn't really delved into as much as it is in the movie yeah and going just back to the support groups I guess the idea is that it's kind of uh you know finishing where it starts kind of idea but and then just he's in a mental hospital. I wonder if the idea is that like, was he always in a mental hospital or is this just a next Uh, scene in the book? But like, yeah, I I uh, didn't get the impression that he was always supposed to be in a mental mm -hmm. hospital. Um, I, (laughs) Palinik said in an interview that he's like not a fan of resolution, uh, in writing and, you know, plenty of authors like don't really give solid resolutions in their work. Mm -hmm. Um, but to me, that kind of read more as him just being like, yeah, I don't feel like writing <laughs> the best <laughs> endings because I, I really don't think it's like the greatest ending and mm-hmm. and it does feel like it, something a lot smarter could have been written and, and yeah. figured out. So the ending of the movie, I think just works better because you like in the third act, you see the narrator's mind start to change and being like, okay, I got to fix this. I have to figure this out and I have to try and stop this. Cause he goes to the police. He starts to talk to them about what project mayhem is. And then obviously the cops are a part of project mayhem mm-hmm. and he goes and tries and stop the bomb, but it doesn't end up working. Now had the movie ended with this fucking crazy John Woo action movie ending of like trying to stop the bomb and they stop the bomb and everything's okay. That obviously wouldn't have made sense. Like well, it he, he stopped like, the bomb in the building that he was in. Right. 
I I couldn't. I actually does Tyler put the wire back in? I thought I heard him put the wire back in. I don't think he does because I because Tyler gets all pissed off. Mm, okay, well then in, in that I, case I might I'm be wrong, wrong but, but but the the plan still technically carries out. Well, you know, yeah, Project all the other Mayhem yeah, blow up. Project Mayhem wins essentially. You know, quote yeah. unquote wins. But like, had it totally been stopped and everything goes back to normal that wouldn't have made sense for the story like it makes sense to see project mayhem reach this magnum opus ending of destroying these buildings you know i think that makes sense i also don't think it would have made sense to then show the effects of that you know yeah you get the point yeah you get the point whereas in the book it's an ending that's on such a smaller scale yeah and it's hardly even like really an ending because it's very suspended yeah, it's almost like uh-huh. it's just a pause because all the nurses in the mental health uh, facility are like members of Project Mayhem and and yeah. there's people writing to them. So it yeah, it feels very suspended, like or paused, like okay, well, it's kind of still going on, but we're not going to see like a big conclusion just yet, or like mm-hmm. I guess Project Mayhem like isn't going to really continue carrying on. And, you know, with the film in regards to, again, being like a satire and just very um, like over the top or absurd, uh, I-, I think like <laughs> the world resetting to zero because of like a-, a cult of angry men, like is such a better uh, note to end on when you're really driving home the theme of like, this is all just getting like too crazy and mm-hmm. like toxic masculinity uh, resulting in the world falling apart, things like yeah. that. Yeah, and again, that is why that's another reason why this movie like really kind of uh, speaks to today. And I think that this is a story that uh, it feels like you know, with the presence of incels and the presence of such a crazy, like out of control online culture and the Proud Boys and the insurrection and stuff like that. Like toxic masculinity is so prevalent in today's society and how that has you know what obviously like for negative reasons but has affected change in the way that we perceive like the people around us and that and like how it can actually lead to things like the insurrection and stuff like that like it's it's so timely in that sense and i and it feels like like tyler has that amazing monologue in the middle where he's like you know we've all been raised on television to think it'd be you know we'd be movie gods or rock stars but we won't you know we're slowly learning that and we are very very pissed off like that's a really really great encapsulation of the feeling of everyone in this movie mm-hmm. and i mean this movie also is a testament to like you know there's a lot of you know questions around you know what kind of characters should be portrayed in movies and what messages were were telling or we're putting out into the world with movies and i think that there's been conversations you know about like so many of these movies since like even like you know when joker came out i mean that movie sucks but like there's there's always been like that kind of conversation but this movie should again i think it, it is a testament to just how smart it is is that like people do keep misinterpreting it it's like it's not promoting us it makes it feel real and uh uh what's the word like I guess plausible maybe, but it feels authentic, maybe a better, a better word for it. Yeah. And, and again, it's just, it's really weird to me that Pelinick was not aiming for 
um, a critique of masculinity because I imagine again as a closeted gay man that he felt very um, you know maybe he was kind of tackling and I'm just like spitballing and you know making my own conclusions but I Mm -hmm. imagine that you feel very um, you're closeted for a reason you maybe feel very like an outlier of typical masculinity or depictions Mm -hmm. of masculinity and I, I just feel like that comes through so much in the novel that it's just so weird that he is like, no, it's a criticism of uh, capitalism and consumerism and trying to figure out who you really are and consumerism won't let you. And like, uh, I just think the whole masculinity aspect, because even Big Bob, you know, the novel and the film start out with the narrator crying into a bosom, which, <laughs> I, and I, I think, you know, that there's something there of like, you know, you, you sometimes you need feminine energy or feminine uh, venues of healing or or venting or whatever, and he's like crying to this bosom. And so I was thinking about it if Chuck Paluna kind of disavowed the uh, critique and satire of toxic masculinity, then like, well, why does Big Bob have bitch tits? And I yeah. was like, well, it's probably just because he was trying to showcase someone who lost all their masculinity and ended mm-hmm. up getting breasts as a result of it. Um, but I think he accidentally made a smart commentary because again, I, I just, I just cannot believe that he was not purposefully aiming for a critique of masculinity. And in the movie, like both are used, like both themes are, I I think the the masculinity one is kind of the main one, but the, what's so good about the critique of consumerism and just the, you know, buying things to make your apartment look like there's the whole thing in the book where he's like you buy a sofa and it's like that problem solved i don't ever need another Mm -hmm. another sofa like i've got that problem figured out now i can focus on other things that's great for world building and fincher does great like i love when you know the the narrator's walking through his apartment and it's putting up each little individual item that he bought with the catalog like uh, article and the price tag there and and you understand that and you get like but it's good for the exposition of the setup and the the world building in the first act of like so so then when his apartment blows up which we obviously find out later that tyler did then we can focus on what then leads him down this road of starting fight club and project mayhem which is where all of the other you know masculinity themes um come in so i think you can obviously like both are used i don't i don't really think i I don't yeah i don't know why he would disavow like i think that i mean there's there's intent and then interpretation but it's so i do agree that like it is interesting how it is kind of like a franchise and it is this feeling of uh, which is just also interesting that he would write sequels to this, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but like, um, you know, the the spreading of the idea and mm-hmm. the buying into the what is sold to you by this guru, by this like media mogul that yeah. is Tyler Durden. But it's also about dudes punching each other and getting anger out and feeling reinvigorated about life like that. Yeah. I don't know how you can. It's such a major theme that it's so strange to just be like, no, that's not it. Yeah. Like, and if so anything, his, his the satire of consumerism, I think, does not hold up or age as well, because, you know, I, I think when you read it, it's kind of all the critiques of consumerism are kind of very obviously from a pre-millennium, pre-9-11, pre-turn of the century mm-hmm. uh, outlook of where, like, hey, we're on the fringe of the millennium and we're going to have everything ahead of us, and but not all of us. And fast forward, like, 20 years later, 30 years later, and 
uh, most people don't have those things. Like, yeah. there's not real like, you know, a lot of people have been left like destitute. There's like a really a line where uh, Tyler says, "We have no great war," and I'm like, "Oh man, if only Chuck Palahniuk knew like that uh, we would end up having a war that lasts forever mm-hmm. uh, post 9/11." And and so I think like the whole consumerism uh, critique or satire, whatever you want to call it, um, does not carry on in age as well as the critique of toxic masculinity. Like you said, that's something that's still very relevant um, in a way that this kind of criticism would ring true. But the kind Mm -hmm. of criticism of like, people can't stop buying things. Like, I don't think rings is true anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah. And I think that's just a very tired, like satire, like, and I t- tired even as of the nineties. Um, yeah. I, I don't think Palinik was the first to do it and I don't think he did it as well as other people did it. So I'm like, come on, man, just like lean into, you might as well lean into if people ended up interpreting your work as a critique of masculinity, you might as well just say, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. And he yeah. did in the afterward, uh, he, he speaks of an anecdote in which somebody approached him on a plane and they were like, uh, hey, I read Fight Club as uh, with a homosexual subtext of the narrator wants to be with other men. And Palinik was just like, sure, like whatever you want to make of it. And I think that's great. Um, so I'm like, why are you disavowed? Like, yeah. why are you so pushing against the idea? Like going as far as to say that you don't think toxic masculinity is even a thing that exists there and can't have any satire of like. Mm-hmm. come on yeah i don't know that's very strange you, yeah you do have a point that like the the there have been obviously other authors and writers who have taken the consumerism theme and that like that's been around forever you know yeah, that's it, that 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 it's definitely been done before it's been done well and uh i think that you know the toxic masculinity thing in that same speech you're talking about where he says our great world or is a spiritual one you know he says like we're the middle children of history you know a whole whole generation of people waiting tables and uh you know parking cars and and things like that that adds to this anger that's brewing Mm -hmm. and it's such a poignant thing again in the movie but that speech in the book is broken up and kind of spread out throughout like a couple other chapters that it does kind of get lost and it kind of seems like when they put it together for the movie they were that you could tell they kind of hit gold with that. They were like, yeah, "Yeah, this is going to be like a really good thematic. Like, yeah. um, And I don't know. It it just, especially given the context of the time and, you know, on the verge of, you know, the new millennium and, uh, you know, the great expectations for what would be only to be (laughs) crumbled. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 fall apart. Yeah. And all this, and just, you know, not knowing what, is, is coming and that just I think just speaks so much I also think that is so much easier tran- to translate into characters because like it's mm-hmm. so much easier to have two people fighting than it is to have two people buying stuff like that's just yeah. that makes more sense character wise and so I think that Fincher just did a great job of let's use this as exposition and kind of world building in the beginning and then the masculinity and toxic personality is going to come in and take the story really where it needs to go because that's what the story really has um, to offer. Yeah. And with the film, you know, like you're saying that the film does a much better job of bringing out the satire of toxic masculinity. 
uh there's a really pretty explicit nod to it um at one point when they're on like the bus and there's a like a calvin klein or a gucci ad or something with a man's just like bare ass which like would never be an ad it's like very funny yeah Uh, and edward norton is just like is that what a man looks like uh and you know that's not in the book um, and to give Palinic credit, I don't want it to make it sound like I'm just like shitting on him and saying that like the movie did what his book tried to do, but better. Um, I think Palinic's, you know, uh, the, the themes and nods to, you know, class divisions and class frustrations and things like that, you know, with the whole like, we got college degrees and now we're waiting tables and shit. Like that's all, that still unfortunately rings true and is still mm-hmm. very relevant. And I think he you did a really great job uh, depicting those kinds of frustrations as something visceral and physical, like literally like men beating the shit out of each other. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I just think the whole aspect of the, it's a satire of consumerism is is what does not hold up as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Um, So I think it's time to answer the final question of our uh, discussion here. We, uh, I, I, th- I guess I forgot to say this up top, but it's good to say it now that um, <laughs> obviously before we um, in previous episodes, we've talked about the final question being why we love a certain movie and how it adds to our love of the medium. We're going to change that up for this series because we're talking about two specific works, basically um, the book and the film. So any final thoughts on fight club and which one speaks to you more? Which one do you, uh, prefer do you are you more a fan of the book or are you more a fan of the movie some final thoughts for Rihanna yeah start well, us off. final thoughts I mean you know it it is still like a cultural force and if that's because incels and like teenagers are carrying the torch then like so be it but uh I think the um constant rhetoric and conversation around it is a sign of like obvious success like mm-hmm. um I, I think the film is much better uh, mm-hmm. And I think the book has its weak spots and kind of comes off as a little amateurish, which it was his first novel. But again, you read through more of his novels as time went on where he was a writer and a successful writer and and there wasn't much growth. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I think despite it being kind of a, a simple, short novel, um, still wildly successful. So he did something right. And yeah. the movie, while not successful at first, clearly did something right, too, and that it, it resonates with a lot of people. And even if it's resonating for the wrong reasons, it's still managing to be, you know, on the forefront and talked about, if not just talking about people misinterpreting it. Uh, so, you know, you, you got to give it credit. Uh, that's not the easiest thing to do. So, yeah, it, it it, it's it's fun it is what it is like I, yeah. <laughs> I don't think i don't feel a real need to return to it um but the movie is uh, a lot of fun in a way that i don't think the book really was and mm-hmm. so yeah i think the film is much better and i just love edward norton i love watching him act and yeah. the film i would revisit just for that reason mm-hmm. yeah i'm going to agree i definitely think the film is much better i uh you know being a huge fan of Fincher and uh, it's not my favorite Fincher film but it is uh, one that is so much fun to watch and is so funny and is so energetic 
And I and I, I should kind of reiterate, I said up top, I did have a lot of fun reading this book. And I mm-hmm. think it was kind of a re-sense of discovery of like, I haven't read this in, you know, close to like eight years. So it was kind of fun to kind of revisit that. And it uh, and the book does move. And I, I think that, like you said, yeah, it does speak to it does have um, it is it is successful because of the conversation around. And we still recognize Fight Club as a piece of our pop piece of pop culture. Um, I think the movie definitely accentuated that and did a better job at that. But um I enjoyed the book. I definitely don't have a reason. I agree with you. I don't have, I'm not going to go back to it probably in a few, in several years, you know, I, I, it's fresh in my mind. That's good for me. But the movie is one. I, this was my second time this year rewatching the movie. So it was, (laughs) that should say something. Um, And what I really love about the movie though, is I think that it's just a great representation. It's kind of like, it's up there with like Lebowski in terms of, like top-notch cult classics i feel yeah and, well, and very quickly it's interesting you bring up the big lebowski because um I, I watched this with my boyfriend fight club not the big lebowski mm-hmm. and he was like it really sucks that like bros love this movie the mm-hmm. way that they love the big lebowski and i feel like i can't love this movie if bros love it for the wrong reasons and uh the Big Lebowski is also a critique of masculinity, and so yeah. I think this mm-hmm. is a fun little comparison. Yeah, it and it, yeah, I, I know sometimes it's tough to love something that incels love, but like, <laughs> I feel like recognizing what the story is actually about and what it's saying yeah, separates me from that. That they love that it for crew. the wrong reasons. Yes, yes, but. I, I love cult classics because I, I think this movie just makes so much bigger swings than a lot of mainstream, like successful movies do. Like it's has a very definitive style. It's talking about characters that are very unlikable. It's mm-hmm. talking about like uh, situations that we like as average viewers don't want to find ourselves in. And uh, it can be tough to side with like the goings on, but it like, again, like I mentioned, like there's like freeze frames, there's crazy music cues, there's, um, you know, cuts in the edit with, uh, you know, with, with a frame of Brad Pitt, like to it, it's so bonkers, the directing in the movie, but I, I love that. I love cult classics because of that, because they're, the characters are so idiosyncratic. They have such an interesting relationship. You don't really see a lot of that in, um, mainstream they don't really try and go for people who are that feel like you would meet them like maybe you would try and probably run into Edward Norton at some point but <laughs> realistically you're never going to meet someone like Tyler Durden and you're never going to meet someone like um, Marla Singer they yeah. just do such a great job of feeling like uh, singular characters like I can't think of other characters that uh fit these uh roles like to a t i know there's obviously like attributes that carry over to other films but like i don't know it's just i i love that this movie kind of got the reputation that it did of uh being this underground kind of it it almost is like kind of perfect for the movie because of how fight club starts like in the movie and then like everyone was just like have you seen fight club like here's here's a vhs copy like go go check it out you know um and i I love movies like we talked about big lebowski on here and how that movie is so and yeah i hate the fan culture surrounding the big lebowski too (laughs) because it's so ridiculous but like i love that the we have these movies as um you know examples of resonating with audiences later and kind of growing um 
in your expectations as you watch them more and how they kind of become a part of our conversation well after they've come out and uh or yeah again a sense of discovery like when i found this movie i was like this is what this movie's about like what like i didn't <laughs> expect it and it's so fun and i and um, then you start lifting weights and then you start yep, uh, an mm-hmm. incel forum and yeah. then you <laughs> and then i bought the orange i bought the orange tyler durden sunglasses you know and, and then you uh, got red pilled yeah exactly <laughs> um but it's it's a. Uh, yeah, I, I prefer the movie. I definitely would rewatch the movie um, again. And uh, I think this was a great, a great discussion. I agree. About Fight Club. And, and a good first episode, because uh, when it comes to film adaptations, I do think it's fair to say this is a more famous one. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, this is a great kickoff to a, a long road ahead of us and long, <laughs> not in terms of like, oh, it's a long one, but like <laughs> we're going on quite the journey this uh, this uh this year so see you later yay bye everyone thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of frankly i love movies off the shelf you can follow us on instagram at frankly i love movies and at frankly podcast on twitter our show is produced by selvin j harris with music by Kanan harris and series artwork by rihanna henson i'm rihanna henson i'm josh wall frankly i love books and frankly i love movies